Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Hey, listeners, we are back. It's Gary and Terry and Anesthesia Alchemy. Gary, we got a hot one today here, buddy, don't we? You know, in January, the American Society of Anesthesiologists published a brand new practice guideline specifically addressing monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. Did you get a chance to take a look at that, buddy? Well, yeah, Terry. And, you know, this is going to be interesting, and we really need to dig into what this means for everyone standing at the head of the table the folks in the pharmacy, and the purchasing office, which we'll get to that a little bit later. Maybe this even affects providers' exposure to litigation, which is an interesting topic also in the event that there's serious respiratory complications in the PACU due to inadequate reversal of neuromuscular blockade, which I think every single one of us uh, performing anesthesia has witnessed at least at one time in our career. But before we get to that stuff, don't you teach students about neuromuscular blockade and antagonism? Well, you know, I sure do, Gary. And my my students, they eat that stuff up. They get so excited when they talk about post-Titanic twitches. It's phenomenal. But even before we get to that, I think, you know, true to our history, we need a new word of the day. Maybe today's word of the day should be cyclodextrin. Now, cyclodextrin isn't as sexy and exciting as cyclopentantho and anthramine or whatever that stuff we were talking about last week was, <laughs> but, but which is, of course, my favorite ingredient, Old Smoky Joe's Texas Barbecue Brisket Sauce, but it's germane to today's discussion, don't you think? Oh, you're right, Terry. When we start talking about neuromuscular blockade and such, we're talking about physiology and pharmacology, and that means organic chemistry. So get ready, folks. Three of my favorite topics... And that really gets my barbecue juices flowing. So here's the quick and dirty on cyclodextrins. First of all, they are not the ingredients in the beloved Southern sweet tea or even Tony Tagger's sugar frosted flakes, right? No way. But they are important organic compounds with a multitude of uses in healthcare and other industries that we do see. Hey, hang on a second. Are you are you telling me these cute little boogers aren't sweet? Gary, let me get my seatbelt fastened. I think we're about to wrap our heads around some real science. Okay, I'm ready. Let's have it. All right, Terry. Well, here it goes. Hang on to your scrub cap. Cyclodextrins are cyclic oligosaccharides. Big words there. Derived from the enzymatic digestion of starch, of all things. Not the starches from your conventional fully baked potatoes, though. That's hollow complex compounds that have lipophilic cavities and hydrophobic outside surfaces. Typically, they have six to eight monosaccharide units forming the molecule. And these are really big molecules, and they do have a molecular weight of somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000, and I can't remember the units, angstroms or something like that, uh, some physics terminology, I suppose. Because they are hollow with a lipophilic cavity, they can bind to lipophilic compounds, forming water-soluble inclusion complex. Now, that's a mouthful. These unique molecular forms do have uses in the food industry to increase food safety. Uh, 
they're also used, interestingly, in the textiles industry and medicine, where they have a multitude of applications that are continuing to grow, including binding to steroid-based neuromuscular blocking drugs. The most abundant of these compounds are the alpha-cyclodextrins, beta-cyclodextrins, and my favorite, gamma-cyclodextrins, from which Sugamidex is derived by extending the cavity size by attaching eight carboxylthiol groups to the six carbon position of each subunit. So just think of Sugamidex as a big molecular hollow cone that can sweep up and encapsulate lipophilic substances, especially steroid-based physiologic and pharmacologic compounds. You know, like cyclopentanophenanthrenes, to name a few, <laughs> you know we would come back to that, right? Sugamidex isn't picky, though. It can bind to steroid-based neuromuscular-blocking drugs. Other agents like progesterone, prolactin, and I hope everybody's telling their patients about this one, hormone-based oral contraceptives. Now, just a little aside here, you may all realize, just to kind of get that assimilation, that Terry loves barbecue. Well, Sugamidex isn't so picky either. Just like Uncle Terry at barbecue, whether it's steroid, progesterone, or even hormone-based contraceptives, it's all going on the grill. <laughs> that is crazy talk, but you're right. It is, a, it is a molecule that has lots and lots of applications, lots of implications for our, for our patients. And, you know, the other day I was talking to my students about a concern in uh, mothers who give birth and are attempting to establish lactation that receiving Sugamidex could actually interfere with establishing lactation, although there is a sense that in mothers who have already begun breastfeeding that sugamidex may not be as much of a problem and we really we really had to get our heads wrapped around this because and i'm pretty proud of this our hospital was the first hospital in in north carolina to put uh sugamidex in the operating room and i want i just want to share a little story about that because it was pretty eye-opening and i have to give credit to paul packard who was our um department director at the time he went to the pharmacy and you know we knew that sugamidex was going to be more expensive but we really were concerned about residual neuromuscular blockade in the PACU, and, and he made the case that we could probably reduce that. So not long after the drug was released in 2015, you know, within 10 days or two weeks, we had it in the OR. Now, the very first time I used it was uh, one day when I was precepting a student from Wake Forest University who was rotating through our, um, through our operating room. And we were providing anesthesia for a particularly interesting case called a bronchothermoplasty. Now, a bronchothermoplasty is a therapeutic procedure where the pulmonologist advances a heated probe down into the main stem and uh, first or second generations of airways and uh, applies heat to these uh, vast, to the bronchial smooth muscle and stuns it. And it's really um, a, a novel treatment for treatment-resistant asthma. But the pulmonologist wants a TIVA and he wants him absolutely paralyzed, uh, maybe one post-titanic twitch. So, you know, the problem with that is if you have no post-titanic twitches, you're staring at 45 minutes to an hour before you can antagonize rocuronium neuromuscular blockade with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. But lo and behold, guess what we had in our anesthesia cart? 200 milligram bottles of Sugamidex. Nice. So at the end of the case... I'm looking at the student. I'm going, well, let's give this stuff a shot. So we drew up, as the product label suggested, four milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex, turned off the Tiva, pushed that Sugamidex, and uh, by the watch, it was 52 seconds, and that patient was completely back by a train of four and had a post-titanic uh, tetanus. So we were really excited about that. And if you think about it, we got that young lady out of the operating room in about 10 minutes after the pulmonologist walked away versus nearly an hour. So anyway, I just Incredible. wanted to share that with you. It was just crazy. It was just, we knew we were on to something then. Anyway. <laughs> Well, all right, Terry, uh, take us from uh, the brain to depolarization of the postsynaptic membrane and the contraction of skeletal muscle. And I know people don't like the way I say skeletal, but it could be skeletal. 
It, it could be, <laughs> but you know, it's not. So okay. Anyway, I'm really excited about this. I really, I think that understanding the, you know, the essentials of neuromuscular transmission really does take us down to having a better understanding of how to control uh, the existence of residual neuromuscular blockade. So anyway, so when we make a decision that we want to consciously or unconsciously move, all of that gets started in our cerebral cortex uh, by an upper motor neuron, the, the first neuron in the series. And so let's say, for example, you're in an argument and you want to extend the first, second, third phalanges of your middle finger oh. uh, to express some consternation. Yeah. Not that that would happen, but if Never. it did, you know, sign language. <laughs> so that initial pulse the impulse is generated by an upper motor neuron, which descends through the brainstem and down through the medulla. And eventually those fibers are going to cross to the opposite side and they're going to transmit uh, their signals to inner neurons or a lower motor neuron in the ventral root of the spinal cord. Now, this signal is carried by the upper ner motor neuron in the form of a wave of depolarization caused by the sequential opening of sodium channels all along the length of the nerve. Now, there's just tens of thousands of these sodium channels all along there, but they open uh, and close sequentially and depolarization is transmitted down the length of the nerve as those sodium ions move into the interior of the cell uh, and, and depolarize that neuron. Well, I know that's a mouthful, but uh, depolarization of a motor neuron takes place between the gaps in Schwann cells, which are a little bit like a form of wraparound insulation, which serves two very important purposes. Number one, those myelinated nerves are able to transmit signals very, very, very quickly, uh, which obviously we need for movement. And then the other part of it is that myelination reduces the amount of energy that's required to transmit that signal and, and to repolarize the nerve uh, and get it ready to go again. Now, to repolarize that neuron, uh, potassium has to leave the interior of the neuron and that reestablishes the polarity of that membrane. Uh, and of course that potassium is driven out by this influx of sodium ions and the relative balance of sodium potassium within the, the neuron itself. And that's generated but maintained by the ATPase pump, which is an energy dependent process. So boy, we are really going down the road here. But, but now once that upper motor neuron synapses with the lower motor neuron, which is gonna really get the action going, uh, the, the neurotransmitter is glutamate, one of the body's most abundant excitatory transmitters. And I get excited just saying glutamate, don't you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's I can hardly stuff. sit still. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> So um, once glutamate transmits that signal to the lower motor neuron, that wave of depolarization gets going again, and that stimulation of the lower motor neuron by glutamate causes the generation of another action potential, which eventually finds its way down to the neuromuscular junction. Ooh, baby, that's where the action is. And as the name implies, the neuromuscular junction is the point of communication between the nervous system and those all-important skeletal muscles that you were talking about earlier. Really skeletal, skeletal, skeletal. The, yeah. Anyway, they're myelinated. <laughs> anyway, so now Gary, this is where things get interesting. Wow, that's some crazy stuff. Ions are going every which way. Does the same exchange of sodium and potassium actually continue down the lower motor neuron as well? It sure does, Gary, right on down to the presynaptic bulb. But as you know, when that old wave of depolarization reaches the presynaptic bulb, some calcium channels open, and then the action really gets hot. Gary, why don't you take a few minutes and remind our listeners of the magic that happens when that old calcium influx starts things rolling in the presynaptic bulb. All right, Terry, well, buckle up because we're diving deep into the world of neuromuscular transmission. Calcium is the key to getting everything going leading up to the release of acetylcholine. And so as soon as that wave of depolarization reaches the presynaptic bulb, calcium channels open up faster than a set of saloon doors in an old Western movie. And that calcium entering into the neuron enables a specific enzyme, and that's known as calmodulin, dependent protein kinase, to anchor the acetylcholine vesicles to the presynaptic membranes and release their neurotransmitter into the synaptic space. 
whoa, you know, I always kind of knew that getting adequate calcium levels was important. And too little calcium, as you remember, makes it too easy for sodium channels to open on neurons. But it looks like calcium is really important in several steps along the way to getting effective neuromuscular transmission. Now, once that acetylcholine gets into the synaptic cleft, what happens then next, Gary? Well, so Terry, once the acetylcholine crosses the synaptic cleft, it then binds to the receptors on the post-junctional membrane that causes a post-synaptic membrane to actually depolarize. And then a wave of depolarization is then transmitted or propagated down into the muscle by activating other voltage-gated sodium channels along the way through the T-tubules. Wow. Gary, remind me now, acetylcholine, it doesn't last very long. It's pretty short-lived, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, Terry. It's almost immediately metabolized by an enzyme known as acetylcholinesterase. And the portions of that broken down molecule are reabsorbed and recycled into the presynaptic bulb. So I guess, Gary, once that wave of depolarization reaches deep in the muscle, skeletal muscle contractions can occur because calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum plays an important role in the actin and myosin fibers being able to join together and cause the muscle cell contraction. Isn't that right? That's right, Terry. And of course, entry of calcium into the muscle fiber itself is controlled by the di hydropyridine renitidine receptor complex. We're heard that before, malignant hyperthermia, right? Yeah. So when that receptor malfunctions, some really serious bad things can happen. But that's the story for another day. We've got to focus our attention here on just basic neuromuscular blockade. So Terry, we've talked a little bit about what happens to get the nerve impulse down to the skeletal muscle <laughs> so that the muscle can contract. But let's not lose sight of the fact that in the beginning, we were talking about monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. And even though we haven't really gotten off track, we've covered a lot of ground here. So why don't you explain to us, uh, to our audience, that could be anesthesia providers, the public, anybody that finds our show very interesting, um, explain what happens when a non-depolarizing Neuromuscular blockade drug blocks the actual neuromuscular transmission at the neuromuscular junction itself. Well, thanks, Gary, for kind of you know getting me back on track. When a when a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drug occupies that post-junction receptor at the neuromuscular junction, the important neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, that we were just talking about, doesn't have an opportunity to bind to the receptor and activate it. Now, as a result of that the receptor isn't stimulated and neuromuscular transmission fails. And here's the tricky part. Those non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs are bound to the junction receptor in what's called a dynamic equilibrium. That means they don't just bind to the receptor and stay put, they bind and release and bind and release until eventually they drift out away from the neuromuscular junction. Now, sometimes during that process, some acetylcholine can get through, but you have to have a critical mass of acetylcholine stimulating an adequate number of receptors in order to generate a post-junctional action potential and get neuromuscular transmission. Now, effective neuromuscular transmission can only occur when at least 30% of those receptors are available to be stimulated. Now, that's one of the interesting conundrums that causes so many problems with monitoring and antagonizing neuromuscular blockade using acetylcholinesterase-inhibiting drugs like neostigmine and edrophonium. Those drugs can allow acetylcholine to accumulate and more of it to bind to the post-junction receptor, but there's only so much they can do. Their ability to restore neuromuscular transmission has a real and important sealing effect. So, Gary, I mentioned that different neuromuscular blocking drugs have different binding characteristics. Maybe it would be useful for our listeners for you to take us back in time a ways, well, actually back in time a long ways, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about when neuromuscular drugs, blocking drugs were first introduced into anesthesia practice eons ago, what some of the newer intermediate acting neuromuscular drugs do and how they work. Ooh-wee. Well, Terry, <laughs> I think Curare and some of its other relatives like Metacurine, Decamethonium, and Galamine came into use in around 
the late 1940s and early 1950s. Now, these drugs had a very slow onset and lots of side effects, if you all remember back to the textbooks. Some of them actually cause some significant histamine release, which is problematic. Uh, it lowers blood pressure, lasting very long, prolonged periods of time. And they were really very, you know, ultimately difficult to antagonize or reverse. So understanding the antagonism of neuromuscular blockade was really in its infancy in those days. In fact, there was a lot of discussion in the anesthesia community about the possibility that using neuromuscular blocking drugs during surgery increased the risk of mortality and morbidity in some surgical patients. In 1959, in fact, Harry Beecher and Donald Todd actually published a study in the Annals of Surgery in which they suggested that there were a lot of deaths in surgery that could be attributed to the use of neuromuscular blocking drugs like curare. Not everyone actually believed that, of course, and there's even some criticism that using neuromuscular blocking drugs made it more difficult to access various depths of anesthesia, which I guess could be true. Not surprisingly, there were rebuttals to Beecher and Todd's article publishing the following year and criticizing some of the author's statistical methods and calling their results into question. We still see that today, don't we, in some of the uh, advocacy articles? Um, sure do. <laughs> you know, there were purists as well, and they relied on eye signs and respiratory rate and depth as well as muscle tone to evaluate anesthetic depths. And many clinicians obviously believe that only inhalation anesthetics with a single age was truly emblematic of the art of anesthesia. But the use of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs was not going away. And in 1959, Dermot Taylor authored a seminar article in anesthesiology, which actually reviewed the chemistry, mechanisms of action, and pharmacokinetics of neuromuscular blocking drugs and actually highlighted the challenges of antagonizing their effects in the surgical population. So Terry, what were some of the problems that could happen as a result of incomplete antagonizing neuromuscular blockade in, in the various surgical patients? Well, you know, Gary, what they were seeing way back then, and which still happens uh, in contemporary anesthesia, is that, you know, postoperatively, when you don't have adequate antagonism of neuromuscular blockade, patients can have respiratory complications. You know, things like low oxygen levels in the PACU, difficulty breathing, uh, having a hard time swallowing, and even upper airway obstruction. And, and that's particularly a problem in, in folks that have, you know, a multitude of uh, comorbidities like COPD and obesity and things like that. So things like pharyngeal dysfunction, increased risk of aspirating gastric contents, refluxing back into the throat, and even pneumonias and requiring rescue and reintubation in the recovery room can happen as well. Kind of scary stuff. Oh, man, that seems really terrible. And, you know, if you've been in this line of work for any period of time, you've seen <laughs> the proverbial a thing or two. So <laughs> surely yeah, that sure doesn't am. happen too often today, does it? Oh gosh, you know, you know, if you've been doing this for very long, you've seen, seen those patients in the OR, you pull the tube and they look like, they look like a walleye on, on the dock flopping around. That's, that's a terrible analogy, but, but it's true. They're weak and they're uncomfortable and they're distressed and it probably still happens too often. Even today. Now, I just want to mention when I was in training back in the mid 80s, oh gosh, and I've just told Ooh. you how old I am. Two <laughs> new intermediate acting anesthesia neuromuscular blocking drugs were introduced into clinical practice. And these two new intermediate acting neuromuscular blocking drugs were supposed to bring an end to residual neuromuscular blockade in the PACU. So we were using in like 85 and 86, they had just come into the marketplace, atricurium and vecuronium which had much shorter durations of action than curare and metacurine and pancuronium, which had been previously used uh, quite extensively. Now, these intermediate acting neuromuscular blocking drugs whose duration of action was supposed to be very predictable and easy to antagonize was supposed to bring an end to residual neuromuscular blockade in the recovery room. But we found out, much to our surprise, that that was not to be the case. 
in the late 70s, uh, there were studies that showed that a surprising high number of patients who received long-acting neuromuscular blocking drugs for surgery had residual neuromuscular blockade in the recovery room, even after receiving what we considered at the time in the anesthesia community, adequate doses of cholinesterase inhibitors, remember, which are intended to allow acetylcholine to accumulate and stimulate those post-junctional receptors. But those studies were showing that anywhere from 21 to 36% of those patients that had antagonized that block with the cholinesterase inhibitor still had measurable residual weakness in the recovery room. Now, later on, uh, when intermediate-acting neuromuscular blocking drugs like atricure and vecuronium were being used, there was still a pretty high percentage of patients having residual neuromuscular blockade and recovery, and it still persists today. Even today, somewhere between, oh, I don't know, depending on whose study you read, maybe 16 to 45% of those patients still experience measurable, if you will, measurable uh, residual neuromuscular blockade. And one particularly interesting study was patients who received intubating doses of atricurium, vecuronium, or rocuronium, and who were not um, the recipients of neostigmine uh, antagonism, had residual neuromuscular blockade with a train of four ratio of less than 0.7, two hours after re receiving their intubating dose, which is just crazy. Uh, and it just tells us how how insidious this uh, residual neuromuscular blockade. And again, remember at the time that I was first in training, we were saying a trainer four ratio of 0.7 was an acceptable level of recovery from neuromuscular blockade. And of course, now we know that even with the trainer four ratio of 0.9, as many as 70% of acetylcholine receptors can still be blocked and have relatively normal neuromuscular transmission, which is a pretty impressive margin of safety when you think about it, but we still were and still are seeing weak patients in the PACU. Yeah, you know, I, I think back, you know, you bring up rock uranium. I think back to the late 1990s, early 2000s when that came out onto the market. And, you know, one of the things that they were, you know, every iteration in your muscular blockades, it, it gives you more precision and it wears off quicker and you know, I remember them handing out their uh, their pens at the time when they were giving stuff away. Uh, it was a big uh, it was a big spring, and you could <laughs> bend it sideways, and it was to demonstrate the flexibility of rock uranium. But I'll say, like even today, and I don't know others out there that are noticing that uh, there are times that uh, rock uranium, even though you give an intubating dose, patients recover exceptionally fast. From it Now, I don't know if that's because the lot number on the drug is maybe just not quality, maybe it, uh, you know, sat on a loading dock for too long, or, um, but I will say, you know, kind of those that are listening, be cognizant of how important of monitoring your uh, neuromuscular blockade, because there is some con in inconsistencies with rock uranium out there, if that's what you're predominantly using. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. So if I remember correctly, Terry, back in those days when we were using qualitative monitors exclusively, right, uh, mini stims and train of force stimulation, uh, we were told we could assess if the patient had residual neuromuscular blockade using clinical evaluation. You know, stuff like 
the patient being able to hold her head up for five seconds, squeeze my hands, cough effectively, you know, maintain some magic level of peak inspiratory pressure before extubation or even how much tidal volume they were generating. I guess you're really telling me those things are not that accurate and folks can still have residual neuromuscular blockade even if we're not able to pull a tongue blade out of their mouth and their teeth clenched. Yeah, Gary, it's even worse that, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that I used to be one of those guys that kind of relied on those clinical signs that you were just talking about. But, you know, the unfortunate truth of the matter is, is that, you know, once a train of four ratio exceeds somewhere around 0 0.43 or close to that, that our human brain and our eyes can't tell the difference between that train of four ratio and 0 0.9, which is now the contemporary threshold for recovery from neuromuscular blockade. So our brains and our eyes fool us into thinking that the patient is fully recovered from neuromuscular blockade, and it's just simply not true. We're just not physiologically good at making those kinds of judgments simply by visually assessing a patient's response to a train of force stimulation. Now, of course, other drugs that we give during anesthesia can make that situation worse. Things like benzodiazepines and opioids and volatile inhalations, in, inhalation agents, and even antibiotics can increase the degree of a patient's respiratory compromise if they've received neuromuscular blockade. So it's, it's really a scary thing, buddy. Yeah, Terry, uh, you know, when you think about it, it really is crazy. I mean, when we look at these things, you know, all of these years we've been using methods to assess recovery of neuromuscular blockade, which are totally unreliable. Uh, you know, and at this time we thought we were doing the right thing, but in reality we're actually probably setting the patient up for failure, uh, certainly in the recovery room. So, you know, on that note, Terry, can you think of any analogy to help us really maybe understand why this is happening it's physiology and, uh, you know, it's a limitation of the, of the brain and the eyes and the system and to be able to make judgments. And, you know, I worked with an anesthesiologist one time who was red, green, colorblind. And the only way that he could tell whether a light was red or yellow or green was the, the brightness of the, the light on the position of the indicator. And so that's a little bit of where we are. We have to have different clues to be able to differentiate between the degree of neuromuscular blockade. And I think that's where we at. We have to understand that as hard as it is to wrap our heads around this, we're just not able of making that precise discrimination with our eyes and our brains. And we need to rely on more accurate tools to make sure our patients have fully recovered from neuromuscular blockade and prevent the, can, the, the complications that, that, you know, can occur with weakness. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah, Terry. So I'm wondering, are there things that we can actually do to reduce the risk of the patient experiencing any type of residual neuromuscular blockade? Gary, I'm glad you asked. There are some really positive steps as providers that we can take. And a couple of my favorite authors, Soren and Brule, recommended several steps to help us take better care of our patients and, and reduce the incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade. Number one, right out of the box, avoid using long-acting neuromuscular blocking drugs like pancuronium and you know rely on intermediate-acting agents like rocuronium and vecuronium and atricurium and cisatricurium. And when, when providers substitute the cheaper pancuronium for intermediate acting drugs, it actually triples the risk of those patients experiencing residual neuromuscular blockade because they are so tightly attracted to the receptors in the neuromuscular junction. Number two, they strongly advocate moving away from relying on any clinical test to determine the recovery of neuromuscular blockade. And as I said just a few minutes ago, we poor humans simply are not capable of detecting fade. Once uh, we get past uh, 0.43 uh, train to four ratio. Now, number three, in a pinch, double burst suppression uh, increases the ability of clinicians to detect fade, you know, from a train to four ratio of around 0.4 and increases our ability to see that fade up to around a, a train to four ratio of 0.6 or maybe 0.7. Still not perfect, but better, an improvement in human performance. And our friends Soren and Brule 
we're recommending the use of quantitative monitors of neuromuscular function way back in 2010. Uh, you know, and there's more. Soren and Brule's paper reported studies showing only a minority of clinicians actually even routinely antagonize neuromuscular blockade if they haven't given any for one to four hours at towards the end of the surgery. So that that is responsible for a lot of residual neuromuscular blockade postoperatively. So they recommend antagonizing neuromuscular blockade whenever residual neuromuscular blockade is present, but you have to be careful too because administering neostigmine or adrophonium in the absence of neuromuscular blockade has been shown to cause muscle weakness too. So dang it, finally Soren and Brule strongly recommend avoiding total twitch suppression because of the sealing effect of the ability of cholinesterase inhibiting drugs to antagonize competitive neuromuscular blockade. Wow, and that's a lot of stuff because we've been doing a lot of that mm. stuff to our patients for a long, long time. Yeah, long time. Terry, a few minutes ago, you were talking about patients having residual neuromuscular blockade after receiving neostigmine or the other cholinesterase enzyme inhibitors. And I want to go back to that for a minute, if you will. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea, Gary. And, you know, this is kind of, you know, in your in your wheelhouse. So tell our listeners a little bit more about why cholinesterase inhibitors like neostigmine and peridostigmine androphonium can't always antagonize neuromuscular blockade. Right. All right. Well, here we go. Well, Terry, you mentioned a few minutes ago that neuromuscular blocker drugs and acetylcholine uh, exist in a dynamic equilibrium at the neuromuscular junction. So when a cholinesterase inhibiting drug is administered, the intent is to allow the accumulation of acetylcholine to eventually occupy enough of the receptors to restore normal neuromuscular blockade or neuromuscular transmission rather. So it's almost like a concentration gradient shift, right, if you will. So the problem, though, is that neuromuscular blocking drugs are still hanging around and competing with acetylcholine while binding to and occupying still some of the acetylcholine receptors. It seems like no matter how much acetylcholine accumulates, those pesky neuromuscular blocking drugs, especially those with high receptor affinity, are still going to be causing problems until they eventually drift away from the neuromuscular junction and are either cleared through the hepatic or other meta uh, metabolic processes like conjugation uh, with water, soluble compounds, and eliminating them through via the kidneys in the urine. And in fact, deep levels of neuromuscular blockade can never be effectively antagonized with cholinesterase inhibitor drugs themselves alone. Wow, Gary, you hit the nail on the head, man. And boy, with our history in the anesthesia community, that's a tough pill to swallow because we've always felt like we were doing the right thing by our patients. So, you know, back to monitoring for a second. If our train of four monitors have been fooling us, what's the best way to monitor recovery from neuromuscular blockade? <laughs> well, now that, that starts getting into a bit of a sticky wicket, right? As our friends across the pond would say, but I'll try to explain it so even we can understand. Well, good luck with that, Gary. You know, I was born in Iowa in the middle of the night, uh, but go ahead. I'll try to keep up with you. <laughs> well, Terry, the experimental gold standard is really mechanomyography, or MMG, as we call it in the scientific world. The problem with MMG is the equipment is a little bit clumsy and it takes a long time to set up, but it does give us the most accurate representation of recovery from neuromuscular blockade. The technique involves measuring the isometric contraction of a peripheral muscle, uh, you know, but there are other choices that can be used. For example, electromyography or EMG measures the electrical activity of a compound muscle action potential. But it takes a lot of sensors to set up, and it's particularly not user-friendly either, requiring you know, as many as five different electrodes needing to be applied. Now, there's another technique, and that is KMG, or kinetomyography. And that involves the application of a polymer sensor to detect movement of the thumb when it's placed at the groove between the index finger and the thumb and the muscle is stimulated. Finally, the technique that is probably the most 
commercially developed is AMG or acceleromyography. AMG actually measures the acceleration of a muscle by a piezoelectric transducer applied to the thumb. Now, these monitors are small, they're easy to use, they're quick to set up. One of the nice features of these commercially available monitors is that they digitally measure and display the train of four ratio for you when they are set up correctly. Now, there are several manufacturers producing these monitors. And although they may not be as precise as MMG or EMG, their use has been shown to reduce the incidence of post-operative muscle weakness and adverse respiratory events, which is really critical um, given that when we hand off to a recovery room nurse, they are not trained in truly managing and instrumenting airways, which is our job. And so once we leave, you are always got your, your fingers crossed. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. We were talking before we came on air about uh, an article that I just read that showed with um, deep levels of neuromuscular blockade, uh, it's possible that the AMGs will underestimate the degree of paralysis uh, compared to really the nice new available EMG monitors and could potentially lead to overdosing. So there's you know still some sophistication that needs to be accomplished, but clearly these new monitors, if you su suggested, give us a quantitative readout of the degree of recovery. So that's really great. You know, you know, we've covered a lot of ground so far, and we've touched a little bit about, you know, the history of the introduction, use, and the pitfalls of administering neuromuscular blocking drugs. We've talked at length about the incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade and some of the complications. And we've even talked about some preliminary strategies that we can implement to reduce the incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade in the PACU. Maybe, you know, maybe now it's time to take a look at this new practice guideline that was published by the American Society of Anesthesiologists way back in January this year and, and see what it says about what we should be doing for our patients. Absolutely, Terry. I do want to get to the details of their recommendations. Now, you know, the authors made eight major recommendations in this uh, consensus paper, if you will. But before I talk about that, I think it's also important to consider their methodology and specify what a guideline really means compared to a practice standard or a practice advisory. Very, very important points to discern here. So first, practice advisory is really meant to help clinicians in decision-making in providing patient care. Uh, you know, they're based on a synthesis of published scientific literature and expert opinion. They are not, let me repeat, they are not intended to act as a guideline or more importantly, the standard of practice or standard of care. They are expected to be adopted, modified, and rejected based on clinical requirements or limitations. Now, similarly, guidelines are intended to aid clinicians in decision-making and also can be adopted, modified, and rejected based on the clinical needs and limitations of what that clinician may be confronting. What they do is provide basic recommendations for patient care based on the synthesis and analysis of the current scientific literature, expert opinion, public comment, and feasibility data. Now, they are intended to improve patient care by providing up-to-date information for respective patient care. Lastly, standards, particularly in anesthesia practice, describe procedures and processes, which should be followed by clinicians in almost all instances. Now, for example, in the case of administering neuromuscular blocking drugs to patients, the standard set forth by the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology states, when neuromuscular blocking agents are administered, monitor neuromuscular response to assess the depth of blockade and degree of recovery. What do you think about Bingo, that, Bingo, Gary. That's <laughs> it. You know, and I think it is important for people to understand the difference between practice advisories, guidelines, and standards because they all have different implications. Now, I think it's important for our 
listeners to really think about those things. And now we're going to walk through the actual recommendations, Gary. And I think uh, you've got those in front of you. So I'll turn this over to you and help help our listeners understand what the recommendations are that were published in, in January by American Society of Anesthesiology. Sure. So first of all, before we get into it, the authors looked at over 270 articles when considering the development of the recommendations, and they evaluated and reported the strength of presented evidence with specific criteria, and that's what we'll walk through. And there's only eight that we're going to actually share with our audience, and, you know, they're pretty straightforward. And so the first recommendation is when neuromuscular blocker drugs are administered, we recommend against clinical assessment alone to avoid neuromuscular uh, residual neuromuscular blockade due to the insensitivity of the assessment. Now, that's a strong recommendation, and the strength of evidence is relatively moderate uh, in the literature. The next thing is, is that they recommend quantitative monitoring over qualitative assessment to avoid, once again, residual neuromuscular blockade. Again, Another strong recommendation with a moderate body of knowledge or evidence that's in the literature. Now, when using quantitative monitoring, they recommend confirming a train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0.9 before extubation. Another strong recommendation with, again, moderate body of knowledge or evidence in the literature. They also recommend using a doctor polyscus muscle for neuromuscular monitoring. And that's been fairly common. That's strong recommendation and, and evidence is moderate in the literature. They also recommend against using eye muscles, the orbicularis oculi for neuromuscular uh, monitoring. Strong evidence to not use eye muscles for monitoring. They also recommend Sugamidex over neostigmine at deep, moderate, and shallow depths of neuromuscular blockade induced by rocuronium and or vecuronium to avoid neuromuscular, uh, residual neuromuscular blockade. Now, that's a lot of strong evidence, and that's a game changer, that one, right? So, uh, Sugamidex is coming off patent here in about another year and a half. So the pricing is uh, not going to be an excuse as we start to move forward. And for those of us that have used it, you know, hands down, uh, it's far superior, far superior. They also suggest neostigmine as a reasonable alternative to Gamidex at minimal depth of neuromuscular blockade. Uh, you know, that's conditional as far as recommendations go or the strength of recommendations, but the evidence is pretty low in the literature as... You know, Sugamidex is, is kind of the thing, right? Now, the other one is, you know, in order to re avoid residual neuromuscular blockade when atracurum is hisatracurum administered and qualitative assessment is used, it is suggested that antagonism with neostigmine at minimal neuromuscular blockade depth. So in the absence of quantitative monitoring, at least 10 minutes should elapse between antagonism to extubation. Um, you know, when quantitative monitoring is utilized, extubation can be done as soon as train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0 0.9 is confirmed before extubation. And that's, again, conditional um, recommendation. It's, it's a low strength. And, you know, the evidence in the literature is extremely low. So... Boy, Gary, that's a lot to digest, I got to tell you. But I do want to point out just a couple of things to help our listeners understand what's being said in these guidelines. Uh, deep blockade. Deep blockade is present when, present when there's no response to our train of four. Uh, and that, you know, there may be a post-tetanic count of one or two responses, but baby, that is some deep neuromuscular blockade. And, you know, we, everybody agrees, I think, and there's not really any mystery. You cannot antagonize that level of relaxation or neuromuscular blockade with a cholinesterase inhibitor. You just can't. Now, a moderate train of four count, as, as Gary mentioned, is considered to be one to three responses to a train of four. And a shallow train of four is considered to be, you know, greater than 0.4 to 0.9. So you're going to see, you're going to see four twitches. So that's what they were talking about with 
with very shallow neuromuscular blockade with atricurium or cisatricurium. Finally, minimal depth is when there's a train of four response with no detectable fade, and acceptable recovery is when the train of four ratio is 0.9 or greater. And you know, Gary, the authors strongly recommend the use of Sugamidex over neostigmine. So tell us a little bit about the differences, again, between how Sugamidex works and neostigmine works to help antagonize neuromuscular blockade. Well, yeah, Terry, you know, we've covered quite a bit of ground here. So I, I agree. I think it's worth sort of reiterating a little bit about, you know, how these two classes of drugs differ, first of all, in their mechanism of action and their ability to actually do the antagonizing or the reversing, even moderate levels of neuromuscular blockade. So first, let's talk about our old friends, the cholinesterase enzyme inhibitors like neostigmine, prostigmine, physostigmine, and edrophonium. These drugs are intended to diminish the metabolism of acetylcholine and as a result, increase the availability of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. So they also inhibit acetylcholinesterase everywhere in the body. So you absolutely have to give an anticholinergic agent with them in order to avoid things like bronchospasm, increased gastric motility, and even nausea, although that's a little bit more controversial. But you sure don't want any of the vagal activities, which some of us may have witnessed because we haven't added enough of that anticholinergic agent. And so what do you get with that? Good old induced bradycardia as a result of the buildup of the cholinesterase inhibitors to the patient who's been actually had residual neuromuscular blockade. So giving things like glycopyrrolate or atropine to the, uh, in conjunction with acetylcholinesterase inhibitor is actually a mandatory combination drug, if you will, when we're reversing uh, neuromuscular blockade. You're basically giving one poison to counter the effects of the first poison. Now, I'm no poet, but that isn't very elegant, right? Now, one trick these drugs can do that Sugamidex can't do is to antagonize benzolithoquinolones or quinolonians agents like atricurium and cisatricurium. Those ones you do have to use an anticholinesterase inhibitor with our anticholinergic agents. Now, Sugamidex only antagonizes steroid-based molecules like pancuronium, vecuronium, and rocuronium. Now, there's an experimental drug being evaluated called calavadion, which can attract and bind benzolithoquinolones, or quinolonium, and steroid molecule neuromuscular blocking drugs in a way that's similar to Sagamidex, but I don't think it's anywhere near coming to the anesthesia market as of today. The last article I read about calavadion, you know, where they get some of these names, I'll never know, but the drug was... Still in animal trials, the last I read, and now that brings us to Sugamidex. And Sugamidex, because of this hollow cone shaped, it's able to bind the steroid-based uh, neuromuscular blocking drugs. And after binding to the neuromuscular blocking drug, the amount of dissociation is so small that it is truly clinically insignificant. And I think those of you that have used Sugamidex know almost immediately, within 30 to 90 seconds, you have pretty much full reversal. And so the bottom line is the binding is so fast, so complete, that it reverses the diffusion gradient of neuromuscular blocking drugs away from the neuromuscular junction, locking up those steroid molecules. And Sugamidex can reverse almost any depth of neuromuscular blockade, if you will. Uh, and it is lightning fast, boys and girls. You know, generally getting about 100% agonism, um, certainly well within uh, under four to five minutes. But, you know, I think, you know, depending on how deep you have those patients, I usually run my patients, you know, quite honestly, three to four twitches on a train of four. And, and um, if I have to supplement, I'll only give 10, 15, maybe 20 milligrams of rocuronium and just let that fade off. So by the time I'm ready to give Sugamidex. I'm near a four out of four. And so literally, um, their pulmonary mechanics are back within 
30 seconds to 90 seconds top, especially with the elderly patients. So it really is magical stuff. And so, you know, Terry, um, two great drugs used with different applications, you know, again, with the benzolithoquinolonians, you can't use Ugamidex for that. Um, but certainly with the steroid moieties, the rocuroniums, vecuroniums, pancuroniums. Now, I will say also the amount of binding ability or affinity for that steroid molecule, it is the highest for rocuronium and then vecuronium next and then thirdly pancuronium. And it's pretty substantial um, between rocuronium and the other two agents. So just kind of keep that in mind. But if you're in a bind, it's usable, right? Absolutely. But you know, here's here's a little bit of my conundrum, Gary. And I've been a department manager and had to manage the budget and and submit requests for capital equipment. You know, and you you've done that recently as well, uh, even more recently than I. Do these new guidelines that you've talked at length about and our discussion about antagonism of neuromuscular blockade? Does that mean that all the anesthesia departments out there right now have to replace their blockade monitors with the new quantitative technology overnight? Man, isn't that going to be expensive? Well, sure, Terry. You know, it, obviously through departments across the country, it's, it's going to present a chan- challenge. But as the price of new monitors starts to decrease and departments replace their olding technology, uh, I'm in that camp, they really should be seriously considering purchasing the latest quantitative monitoring equipment. Those devices are designed to help anesthesia clinicians make more confident and correct choices when they are caring for their patients who have received non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs. Okay, and now here's another one for the folks out in the crowd that are have to go to the the, the pharmacology and therapeutics committee to, <laughs> um, to to ask for Sugamidex or the department director. What do you say to folks to, who are comparing the cost of Sugamidex to, to neostigmine? I mean, there's a huge price break. Yeah, Terry, you know, there's no way around it. I mean, Sugamidex is definitely a little pricier than, uh, no, well, maybe a lot, uh, than neostigmine. It wasn't for a period of time. But depending on your purchasing group, you're probably going to pay somewhere around $100 or more for two seats. Uh, that's a 200 milligram bottle of Sugamidex. Neostigmine is probably going to cost you less than about five bucks. It was a few years pre-pandemic, was actually up in around the 80s to $90 range, but it, it realized it rapidly lost market share as Sugamidex was coming out because they were almost comparable. That's only acquisition cost or direct cost. You know, when a patient is in the PACU and requires rescue, either for non-invasive ventilation or heaven forbid, reintubation and time on that mechanical ventilator because they fail, that cost of the institution is supersedes a hundred dollar dose of Sugamidex. You know, and you don't need many episodes like that to buy a lot of Sugamidex. And I just kind of share a story with you. You know, we actually looked and, and did a study. Uh, it's a few years ago now, so pre-pandemic, but you know. Rescue in the PACU is not uncommon. Um, you know, if you're doing substantial volume, so, you know, doing volumes of two to 250 patients a day, you're going to see one or two residual neuromuscular blockade. That's just is part of the business, right? Um, when not using Sugamidics. So, you know, we calculated out the cost of all of that, the rescues, etc. We went then 100% to Sugamidex, not one reintubation, not one pulmonary or rescue um, in the PACU once moving to Sugamidex, you know, with rocuronium as the neuromuscular blocking agent of choice. So, well, Terry, why don't you wrap a ribbon around this episode and recap what we've learned in this edition of Anesthesia Alchemy? All right, Gary, let's see how I do. And I do want to mention too, we spoke earlier about uh, Sugamidex coming off patent. Now, it was originally released by the FDA in 2015. So what, what, what are we looking at here for a day when a date when it could be manufactured by alternative uh, pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, so when I'm at meetings, you know, having conversations with some of the vendors now, uh, they're saying in two years it's done. So this was a year ago. So we're getting pretty close. I, I can't remember if it's 24, 25, where it actually comes off patent. But, 
you know, it's uh, once that uh, happens, I'm sure the companies right now that are looking to manufacture this stuff are already getting their formulations together, ready to crank it out the minute uh, it comes off patent. So I think we're, we're definitely two years away, if not much less. That stuff will be more common than low-calorie beer at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be able to get it for a song. That's right. They'll be giving, they'll be giving it away at meetings. <laughs> I can right. see it all now. Well, anyway, let's see how I do with yeah. putting a here, little ribbon here, around here, this. Here, ha have some sugar water. <laughs> yeah, baby. Sprinkle this on your barbecue. <laughs> All right. All right. So we know that ear muscular blocking drugs have been around a long time, and they've been associated with respiratory complications when we have not been able to completely antagonize their effects. And patients experience residual neuromuscular weakness in the PACU pretty commonly. It's pretty difficult for us old clinicians, mere mortals, if you will, to tell without using quantitative monitors when patients have fully recovered from neuromuscular blockade and when it's safe and appropriate to take out that endotracheal tube. Subjective signs and qualitative monitors, despite our best efforts, are woefully inadequate. Neostigmine and other cholinesterase inhibitors have a ceiling effect, which limits their ability to antagonize moderate, deep, or even pretty shallow levels in their muscular blockade. And there's also evidence suggesting that given cholinesterase inhibitors to a patient who's are not partially blocked can cause weakness too. So really, there's, it's a, it's a lose-lose proposition, uh, even when we do the best that we can. Now, in contrast, quantitative monitors help us accurately judge when patients have recovered from neuromuscular blockade. And when we're giving steroid-based neuromuscular blocking drugs, vecuronium and rocuronium most commonly, Sugamidex is probably the best choice for antagonizing light, moderate, and deep levels of neuromuscular blockade. And for rapid and surefire, dependable recovery, Sugamidex is the boss with the sauce. You can't beat it. And it's a good thing to remember that benzyl isoquinolinium drugs like atricurium and cisatricurium cannot be reversed by Sugamidex. There may be something on the horizon in the future, but it's not there now. And so we have to antagonize their effects with neostigmine, peridostigmine, or edrophonium. And of course, when we use cholinesterase inhibiting drugs, we have to add an anticholinergic to avoid bronchospasm and bradycardia and other unpleasant increases in gastric intestinal motility right, <laughs> that is a result of acetylcholine accumulating everywhere else in the body. Whoo, baby, that was a mouthful. Uh, well, shoot, kids. Why? And pass that cyclopentanophenanthrene and a little <laughs> sprinkle of the little cyclodextrins on my morning cereal. Well, I think that's a wrap, everyone. And hey, y'all come back and see us again in a couple of weeks for another riveting, spellbinding, and soul-cleansing episode of Anesthesia Alchemy, Gary and Terry Unplugged, right here on your gas-passing podcast headquarters. Well, Terry, that's a wrap. Yeah, I feel better already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next episode, we'll see you. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. 
From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.